0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Should Know is brought to you by GoToMeeting. We all have to meet, but the average cost of a single business trip is $1,000. With just one click, you can save time and money and have your meetings online with affordable and easy-to-use GoToMeeting. Use GoToMeeting for sales presentations, product demos, training sessions, collaborating on documents, and more. And at $49 per month for unlimited meetings, it saves time, money, and travel. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash stuff. That's GoToMeeting.com slash stuff.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. This is Stuff You Should Know, eh?
2: To live and die in LA.
1: Yes, Chuck just did a little... Um, I don't even know if that's foreshadowing. I am really off my game today, so. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. You're so on it. I am. Uh, <laughs> what Chuck brought up, see, listen, listen to me. <laughs> what Chuck brought up um, to live in, I want to get through this sentence. What Chuck brought up to live and die in L.A. for yeah. uh, is because we're talking about counterfeiting today.
2: And that's the best counterfeit movie in history. It is. Easily.
1: It is. And we've talked about it before, but I think it's worth talking about again, like you just did. Mm -hmm. It's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Moving on. So, Chuck, counterfeiting, as you may or may not know, is a dying crime. A lost art. It really is. And actually, uh, this is one of those old school types of criminal activity Mm -hmm. that um, people who are good at it have the respect of law enforcement. Yeah. I was reading an article about this bust. of of some counterfeiting ring and it amounted to just some guy with an inkjet printer who was printing off you know terrible terrible currency on fiber paper right and um this secret service guy who's like a 22 year vet was just shook his head in disgust and he's like it's a dying art like you you just you don't see good paper any longer
2: yeah it's definitely a lost art and um i kind of i know this sounds goofy but i kind of like the idea of since it doesn't happen that much anymore, I can say this of counterfeiting: like, instead of a thief, anyone can throw a win- a, a chair through a window yeah. and go like break into a cash register at night. Right. But to think, like, I'll, I'll print money that's so believable yeah. that you can pass it. Yeah, it's like it. It was artistry for sure. It is. And um,
1: when researching this article, there was a common theme among these great counterfeiters, these uh, five most successful counterfeiters, uh, that they all were just they had. Tremendous guts. Yeah, they were. They tried to break out of jail at every turn. Yeah, um, and they were just really admirable criminals. Yeah,
2: and most of them wrote books about it too, yeah. which yeah. is interesting. It's well, it's a good
1: way to make some money afterwards. You
2: don't write a book about my life as a as a flat screen TV thief. No. No. And if you do, no one reads it. It's self-published.
1: Sure. <laughs> so, Chuck, let's get into this, all right? All right. Now, we're going to talk about some of these successful counterfeiters, and we should also add a caveat here. Successful doesn't mean that they never got caught. Oh, no. They we don't, don't We don't know about those counterfeiters. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, the ones who got caught but still had these tremendous careers are the ones we're going to talk about. And we're going to do
2: it chronologically, buddy, starting with a guy named Stephen Burroughs. Stevie. He uh, was born in New Hampshire, Josh, in the 1700s, Uh late, uh, mid-1700s, and uh, was raised throughout the United States, and (laughs) I think that you have one of the best sentences you've ever written in this article. Which one? (laughs) From an early age, he showed distinct signs of acute chicanery. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Why did you read that like Anthony Hopkins?
2: Oh, that was Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you said, why did I? Yeah. Uh, That wasn't supposed to be Anthony Hopkins. Okay. That was just my newsreel voice. That yeah, was good, thank you. And he was a he was a little mischievous guy, all, yeah. all his life. It he sounds
1: like apparently gained a reputation as the worst boy in town at a very young age. Um, he he stole a bunch of watermelons from a local farmer, and he joined the search party to find the thief. That shows he's smart, right? Uh-huh. And I think at age fourteen he ran away, um, joined the merchant navy. Ended up basically being the de facto ship
2: doctor. Well, he deserted.
1: That's right, he, he went to the he Army joined
2: the the Army deserted the Army, huh then went to college, bailed on college, and then became like a de facto doctor on a boat
1: right and which led him to say, "You know what, I could probably get away with posing and stuff." His father was a clergyman, so he decided that he was going to pose as the leader of a church, which he did successfully for six months, right, led the congregation, like mass everything oh yeah, um and he. Probably could have done that indefinitely because, you know, people aren't that suspicious of preachers usually. Um, But he got busted passing some counterfeit money
2: in Concord, right? Uh, Springfield. Close enough. Yes. And then he was sent to jail. Yeah. And then he thought, I bet a good way to escape from jail would be to set the jail on fire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it worked. Yeah, it did. Because he he successfully
1: escaped. Yeah, he fled to Canada, actually. And um, he, I
2: think he... Did he get caught again? Well, that's where he, he led the most serious counterfeiting ring was when he went to Canada.
1: Right. So he was in Canada, um, and he led this ring for years, and then suddenly he just decided to reform himself. Yeah. He gave up crime, started supporting himself by tutoring wealthy Canadian children, or the children of wealthy Canadians,
2: I should say. Yes. He founded a library? Isn't that what you said?
1: Yeah. He became kind of like a um, cultural benefactor yeah. up there. Crazy. And, even though people were aware of who he was, they still respected him because the stuff he did right um, uh, was just so respectable. Sure. Yeah. They're like, "Yeah, he printed some phony bills. He built us a library. He, yeah, he built a library. Uh, and he died in 1840. But before that, he wrote a book, like you said a lot of them do, called Memoirs of My Own
2: Life. <laughs> That's the best memoir title in memoir history. Yes, it, it is. Memoirs of My Own Life. Yeah, so
1: it. it's still in print apparently. I haven't read it. I haven't either. Well, let's... Moving on. Number four? Yeah.
2: Is, Drumroll The Lavender Hill Mob, which I found out was a movie from 1951
1: with Alec Guinness. Uh, we try researching them.
2: I know. Yeah. That's all you see is the movie. Yeah. But it's unrelated. No. Not related at all. Right. Instead,
1: The Lavender Hill Mob, actually are of fairly recent origin, they were um, operating in the 90s in uh, Great Britain. Uh, around lavender Hill I would imagine and they were founded by this guy named Stephen Jory and this guy was awesome he was what yeah. what they call an old school rogue and that's a quote uh-huh and uh, another guy named Kenneth Mainstone who's a retired printer and Jory recruited Mainstone to come up with some counterfeiting plates right right and they did very successfully and by the way jory is widely credited as establishing the knockoff perfume market
2: yeah i found he um actually bribed a perfumer to get recipes mm-hmm. and by the time it was all said and done had bottled five million phony chanel number no. fives really it's like five million. They had a factory in acapulco <laughs> making the stuff that's how that? successful like, he
1: was if you love giorgio or if yeah. you like giorgio you'll love <laughs> ooh la la and like right. the little spray aerosol can yeah yeah you, when you, was the last
2: time you wore uh, cologne
1: Oh, it's been a long time.
2: Yeah, I, I work alone when I was like 17, I think was the last time.
1: That's about it for me.
2: You know, it's funny when I lived in Yuma, Arizona, all those dudes work alone.
1: Yeah, because everybody's sweaty out there.
2: Well, I don't know. There's just kind of this, it was a different culture. And they're like, you don't work alone? They're like,
1: They had like gel in their hair? Oh, yeah. Okay, I know the culture you're speaking of. Yeah,
2: the Jersey Shore type of thing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the Lavender Hill Mob, right? They were very successful. They printed about 50 million pounds worth of fake notes. And not pounds by weight, but pound by, you know, the right. currency. The right? English currency. Yeah. They also sold
2: fake stamps, which I thought was <laughs> sort of ingenious.
1: It is. But at the same time, it's like, look, you just made 50 million pounds of fake currency. Right. And and one way to get rid of um, counterfeit money is not to just pass it, but you can actually sell it for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Right. To people who know that it's counterfeit and are sure. going to go pass it themselves. But um, even for pennies on the dollar, that's still many millions of pounds. Oh yeah, and these guys are making stamps on the side.
2: Yeah, well I just apparently thought it was a little odd. It was a little odd. Apparently the first bills didn't work out so great, though. Did you hear about that? That the the, uh, the Queen of England looked like she had a beard, <laughs> <laughs> and so that maybe that's why they were making stamps until they perfected the right. the note making. Yeah, which they did because. They fooled uh, UV detectors. They got so good at it.
1: Yeah, and actually they got uh, good enough that the um, the Bank of England actually changed their design for their twenty pound note because of the Lavender Hill right. Mobs' activities and success.
2: Pretty awesome. It is. Yeah. And he wrote a book. Jory did before he died. Just died a couple of years ago, didn't he? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. Yeah. He. It's under two titles. The first one is called Funny Money. Decent. The second one was great. Second one was called. Loads of money. And that's one word. Uh-huh. Loads, of, loads of money. The true story of the world's largest ever counterfeiting ring. <laughs> nice. Colon in there as well.
1: Yeah, it kind of classes up your book when you have a colon in there. Loads of money. Yeah. <laughs> we should write a movie about that guy. We should. All right, Chuck, on to the Nazis. Yeah, I didn't know this. Most people think of the Nazis as like the um, worst fascist state in the world. To ever emerge in the history of humanity, not Probably true. Worst state ever. <laughs> oh no, that is true. Not first, worst. Right, uh, because Mussolini wasn't all that successful. Um, you know, they uh, they directly murdered uh, ten million marginalized people. Yeah, um, including Jews, Roma, Catholics, homosexuals, and others. Sure, they invaded Poland mm-hmm. and France and other countries, but. They also ran, arguably, the most successful counterfeiting ring in the history of humanity. There were a lot of in the history of humanities with Nazis. Almost all of them were horrible.
2: Actually, all of them were horrible. This is the least horrible thing they've ever done. Probably, but it was going to pan out pretty
1: bad in the end.
2: Yeah, they uh, made about 650 million pound notes. Which would be about seven billion bucks today, right?
1: Which was about fifteen percent of the currency in circulation in Great Britain at the time,
2: right? And their uh, brilliant idea was to fly over England and drop cash money from planes, right? They actually figured out, and this is called Operation
1: Bernhard after <laughs> Bernhard Kruger, <Cougar>. yeah. <laughs> Who's an SS officer
2: who was in charge of this operation. Yeah, the head of the operation named the operation after himself. Basically
1: what they did was they went around and figured out what nearly dead people in their camps used to be printers in the time before the war. And they identified them and drafted them to work in what was called the Devil's Workshop. Right. Which was like a secret printing press or a printing office at uh, – what is it? You, you, you speak German. What camp? Uh, Saskatchewan?
2: No. Uh, Schauschenhausen.
1: Nice, Chuck. So they had some guys there uh, all assembled to crack the um, English currency. And they Sachsenhausen.
2: Did. And
1: they did successfully, leading to the 650 million pound notes.
2: Yeah, and they, well, they didn't drop it from the plane, though. They laundered it. Right. Use some of that money to, like, import things. Yeah. And this isn't factually backed up, but there is rumor that they actually used that money to pay. For the rescue of Mussolini,
1: did they really? Yeah. Well, they apparently made a bunch of cash. They they gave the money to a German businessman who served as a front for him to launder it, and he bought anything of value that he could get his hands on. I bet with this money. And apparently, it wasn't a secret. Like uh, England had known since like 1939, right? That this was going on, and they tried to close their borders to incoming currency, but it it didn't really work, right? They finally cracked the American hundred dollar bill. Just as their camp was liberated. Yeah. And they, they, the Nazis knew these guys were coming, so they took all the printing, pre- or the, by these guys, the Allies. Uh, they took the printing stuff and threw it in the lakes, blew stuff up with explosives. Right. I don't know why they were trying to cover this aspect of I the know. Holocaust up, you know. Right. Um, and they were about to execute everybody who was involved, and the Allies showed up and saved the day.
2: Yeah, and I think we should point out the idea behind all of this was to undermine the economies of England and the United States. Oh, did we not
1: point that out? No, no. <laughs> Which so is that's a pretty important part. That was
2: the plan. They weren't just like, ooh, we'll get English money and then we'll buy things," <laughs> <laughs> because you know, if you have a sudden influx
1: of cash, a lot of cash on the on the market right. it leads to inflation. Yeah,
2: yeah, indeed. Uh, there was a BBC TV show, Josh, about this in 1980 called "Private Schultz. And then one of the uh, Jewish um, prisoners forced to do this was named Adolf Berger. Yeah. And he later wrote a book, and that book was turned into a movie that won Best Foreign Language Film in 2008. Yeah. What it's was called, it called? Uh, the Counterfeiters in English. Nice. Don't ask me what it was in German.
1: I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Moving on. Chuck.
2: Moving on to number two. Charles Ulrich. Yes. Not related to Robert. Uric, Ulrich. <laughs> as far as I know. Because there's two different names. Right. Now, this guy was another
1: um, kind of dashing counterfeiter filled with daring do, and he was also a ladies' <laughs> man, actually. Daring do. I, I couldn't help. It's there's a, no other better way to describe it.
2: A cute chicanery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a ladies' man,
1: right? Yeah. It actually led to his downfall, right? He was a polygamist. Uh, and he
2: wasn't shy about it. he was like uh Bill Paxton, for goodness sake, right, and this was in the eighteen sixties in uh, New York he and like most of these uh counterfeiters, he was a gifted engraver of plates, right, So the local mob figures out that this
1: guy is a gifted engraver of plates, and they corral him to try to get him in well working for them right, and he does, and he ends up getting in trouble and ends up forming his own mob, his own gang. And with all the women included, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he finally gets caught in 1868 and stands trial. He was in Cincinnati. Uh, and he got 12 years in the federal pokey. Uh, and by his own estimation, he printed about $80,000 worth of um, phony bills.
2: A lot of dough back then.
1: Which is equal to about $1.3 in 2008 dollars, right? Right. But what was his downfall, Chuck? I said women, but specifically what?
2: Well... Like you said, he was a just sort of a blatant polygamist, made no bones about it, and he engaged, moved all around, engaged in relationships, and never broke off the old ones. Eventually, he moved his wife in to live with he and his girlfriend mm-hmm. and a third woman. Right. And one of them finally said, uh, you know what, I'm going to turn you in, jerk. Actually, all of them turned on him. Oh, they did? Yeah. Interesting. And they turned
1: him in, and that's, that's where the Cincinnati trial came from. Uh-huh. But before that, he had been... Um, Incarcerated, And in the grand tradition of counterfeiters, he broke out and actually led the cops on a chase oh, across yeah. the Niagara River, like right at the falls, uh-huh. and made it across, actually, into Canada and escaped. And he was like, who's that lady in the barrel <laughs> right, yeah. as he was going? And if that's not Daring Do, I don't know what is.
2: That's Daring Do, my it friend. Is. That's okay. a cute chicanery. <laughs>
1: you really <laughs> like that, don't you? That's great. All right, so last one, buddy. And this guy's pretty familiar.
2: Yeah, everyone's probably heard of uh, Frank Abagnale. Yeah. Because uh the Stevie Spielberg movie, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Tommy Hanks. It was
1: made at a time when Spielberg unwittingly had a fake or a stolen Rockefeller in his collection. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. I loved this movie. Did you like yeah, it? Yeah, I liked it too. It was just, I don't know, it was it when Spielberg had kind of put out some stinkers mm-hmm. and everything was so serious and then he just kind of did a fun, entertaining uh, heist movie.
1: Right, and it's one of those movies you can lay on the couch and watch like for the 50th time on like a Sunday. Yeah, agree. But they never
2: show it on TV. Yeah, those. They, I think it ran on uh, like TNT for a while because I saw it. That's it, though. Yeah. yeah. I love this movie. Um, Leo DiCaprio obviously
1: played Frank. And, funny story, when Abigail found out DiCaprio was going to portray him, uh-huh. he was worried because he didn't know if Leonardo DiCaprio would be able to be smooth enough to play him accurately. He's like the smoothest dude on the planet. He is smooth. He's he, like Billy does he know D who he's Williams. dated? Oh, Leo? Yeah. No, I don't think this guy cares. I don't think he thinks Leo DiCaprio holds a candle to him. Goodness me. You can
2: land Giselle and then Well, so can Tom Brady. Well, look at him, dude. Yeah. Stud quarterback?
1: Yeah, but I mean
2: Chiseled out of stone? He's a quarterback. <laughs> Shut up. All right. Uh, He did most of his work in his teens and 20s, which is the remarkable thing about his story. Yeah. And he was a check forger.
1: Yes, as anybody who's seen the movie can tell you. uh, And actually, between the ages of 16 and 21, he cashed more than $2.5 million in fake checks in all 50 states and 26 countries.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's some serious work. And he was also a confidence man. Yes, he was. Because he would not only write fake checks, but he would masquerade as as you saw in the film, like an airline pilot or a doctor or an attorney. Yeah. A uh, professor, I think he did at one point. Yeah. And fooled everybody.
1: Yeah. And he just forged whatever documents he needed to prove that he had the education or training or resume or whatever, and he yeah. get hired, which made him a good con man. Absolutely. Which made
2: him, Chuck, smooth. He said, catch me if you can. Sucker. A-, a few things here, Josh, that are um, similar and different from real life and in the movie, because they always beef it up a little bit in the movies. Yeah. He did actually um, pose as a federal agent when they busted in on him yeah. and kind of snuck out the back door Yeah, said, keep looking.
1: Yeah, he ordered the the feds who were looking for him to keep looking. He said he was like a treasury yeah. agent or something like Absolutely.
2: that. Absolutely. And, yeah, and he was there first. Yeah. Um, he actually did escape from a moving plane taxing on the runway. That's pretty serious, dude. <laughs> That's awesome. That really happened. Uh, however, in real life, he never saw his father again after he left home. And uh, he he had a real problem with his parents' divorce. I mean, like more so than any kid I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Like he would fantasize about meeting his parents again, and then being proud of him, and then getting back together because they were proud of his exploits.
1: Weird. That's kind of like Ralphie dreaming that he was going to go blind from having to <laughs> eat soap for swearing. You remember? I it do. was soap poisoning. <laughs>
2: Uh, he was one of four kids, and in the movie, I think he was a an only child. Yeah. Um, Hannity the character, or Hanratty the character, Hanratty.
1: Yeah, Tom Hanks' character.
2: Yeah, it was actually a guy named Joe Shea. They changed his name. Weird. Yeah, I don't know why. Because they said in the original script it was Joe Shea, and I could never find any reason why they changed it to Hanratty.
1: Did they say anything about Captain America? Did he use the Captain America alias?
2: No, I didn't notice. Yeah. Uh, He was in the film, actually, the, as one of the French policemen that nabbed him at the Oh, end. really? Yeah, he, he had a little cameo.
1: Yeah, because he did a uh, a stint in the uh,
2: French jail. French prison? French prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he uh, is actually married. Married a woman. Uh, as soon as he went straight, he married a woman, still married to her today. Mm-hmm. He's got three sons, and one of his sons is a federal agent. Cool. And he did remain friends with uh, Tom Hanks. Or not Tom Hanks, but <laughs> Tom Hanks. Joe Shea. <laughs> Joe Shea, gotcha. Yeah, and he does. Uh, he does
1: consulting on like identity fraud and you know bank security and stuff like that, right?
2: Yeah. Everyone on your list wrote a book except for number two, Charles Ulrich. Yeah. Well, and the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. But the other the guy wrote actually that's he not true. The guy a book. wrote a book. Yeah, one of the guys involved. Yeah.
1: yeah. Charles Ulrich was just too too involved with the ladies. I to guess so. Waste time writing a book.
2: You should write a book about that. Chuck, do you want to finish this? You want to wrap this turkey up and put
1: it in the oven? exactly.
0: This episode of Stuff You Should Know is brought to you by GoToMeeting, the affordable way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomeeting.com slash stuff.
1: Okay, so if you want to see some pictures about the guys that we were just talking about, one I couldn't find, so I used a picture of Dartmouth College. It was the best I could come up with, and I apologize for that. (laughs) Sorry, Darvin. You can type in uh, counterfeiters, C-O-U-N-T-E-R-F-E-I-T-E-R-S, in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which leads us to listener mail. Thank the Lord.
2: Josh, uh, I'm going to call this synesthetes in. Yeah, we got a bunch of them, didn't we? We did. It's cool to know they're out there. being all weird. Uh, (laughs) This is uh, three quickies I edited them down guys Um, uh, First one's from Jonathan When I hear spoken words I see the written forms of the words in my visual field I see them much the same way I see a memory They don't scroll across my visual field Like a stock ticker Rather they appear in flashes In seemingly random positions and sizes I see the words most clearly when I'm deeply focused On the content of speech like at a lecture Or when I'm listening to lyricized music I often see even see words when I'm dreaming. As for the color, the best I can do is say that they are a generic sans-serif font, white filled with black borders. Cool. And he's a, a researcher at UC San Diego. He said, perhaps I should just ask uh, Professor um, Ramachandran, next time he's sitting across from me, at Perks Cafe. Ooh la la! That's like, dude. If you of see that guy, you should, you you of him. You should ask
1: him. Yeah, I'm glad that we could bring these two together. It's like the mom with her son who went off to college.
2: That's right. Yeah. Uh, so that's from Jonathan. Here's a second one from Ben. When I was eight or nine years old, my best friend moved to another town. That summer, after not hearing from him in a while, I decided to give him a call. Uh, once I walked home from another friend's house, a couple of seconds later, my right wrist suddenly had an intense pain and throbbing for no apparent reason. I iced my wrist, it made it feel better, and when I got home, I was still very confused why it happened. I called my best friend to tell him about this weird thing, only to discover that he was also in pain, waiting for his mom to get him to the hospital. Seems he and his brother were playing Indiana Jones in the Escape from the Closing Garage door when he landed the wrong way and busted his right wrist. I'm a pretty logical guy, but that is really creepy and 100% true. Is that the work of neurons or a minor psychic event? Who knows?
1: Who knows?
2: And this last one is from Jordan in New Zealand. He's a Kiwi. We love New Zealand. Uh, I associate all numbers and letters with colors, and my mother and I also used to argue at times about what color a letter is.
1: Just like uh, Nabokov.
2: Yeah, and they didn't know that they were synesthetes. Just like the famous
1: book by (laughs) Nabokov.
2: (laughs) Awesome. Police, though. God, what a bad show that was. Uh, I thought it might also interest you to know that I experience music as a projection of colors. I can only explain it as a sort of mixture of fireworks and a fountain. Cool. A stream of water shoots in the air, changes colors and the shape in relation to the music. A loud beat is annoying because it's like a pulse ripple in the pond. It distracts and muddies the other tones. Although it is sometimes annoying, I find music distracting. Uh, it can get distracting, and I still find it very difficult to focus on a conversation if there's too much background noise or music. But now I can actually mute, partially mute, Colors, so I can concentrate on music. And while I still see no colors, I uh, do see the explosions. So like a classical piano (laughs) piece is really intense. He says he still sees, oh, I'm sorry, he still sees colors and explosions even though he's muted it, but he's lessened it to the point where he can actually listen to the music and not go crazy. Gotcha. Goodness, I'm having an off day too. Um, Wait, what do you mean (laughs) too? Uh, If I'm talking to someone and music is playing in the background, I can focus on the speaker much easier than I was previously able, thanks to his new muting ability. So that's from Jordan in New Zealand. That's cool. And we heard from other synesthetes, and I just couldn't get them all in the air. So thanks for watching. Yeah, we heard
1: from one guy who was like, wait, I thought everybody saw uh, the date physically wrap around them.
2: Right. Yeah. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Join us on Facebook and Twitter. Yes, please do. At SYSK Podcast for Twitter, and just look up stuff you should know. Um, Website. I think it's called Website. Yeah. On Facebook. Yeah.
1: Yeah, do those things. Yeah, and we're having a Send us an email about anything at all, right, Chuck? Sure. I've got nothing, so just send us an email, will you? Yeah, that's Stuff Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.